Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. My name is Conrad Franz. This is our second episode. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Dimitri Kaligian. Dimitri, how are you? Hello, everyone. I'm doing great. There's been a lot of changes and events in world uh, news, and we're going to comment on some of them today. Yep, yep. It's been it's been a big week. Like I've said, it's it feels it's almost surreal that we chose this time to start a podcast covering the Third World War, but we had huge support, a big outpouring of of support in our YouTube, on our Substack, and I want to thank everybody for that. And it's only going to get better from here. Yeah, that's right. We appreciate the positivity, the feedback, the constructive criticism provided. Um, of course, uh, starting a podcast is you know has its difficulties, but I think today there's just so much content to cover. It's it's really um, it would be criminal to not provide your own opinion, and you know people are free to, I think, comment on these things and uh, definitely. Um, expand and you know use their creativity uh kind of speak about these matters because at the end of the day these things affect all of us and it's our taxpayer dollars that pay for most of these uh incredible ventures which we'll speak about today so i think we have the right to an opinion yep yep it's your it's it's your money getting blown up and all this crazy telegram footage that we all avail ourselves of and i was talking to dimitri earlier it was on wednesday or thursday and i was saying like, besides perhaps maybe starting a show on, like, the day of having a show literally start on the day of the invasion, like, having planned to start it and then it happening to start on the day of the, you know, start of the special military operation, I don't think we could have picked a better time to start this this analysis venture, as if you could call it, you know, this project, because we've really, like, we've really seen the the multipolar and the, the worldwide economic, political, military consequences of this really start to play out, like... Like what Metropolitan Neofito said about entering a new mode of living, you know, the week before Pascha 2020 and COVID, like we're seeing that, like we're seeing that new mode of living just hit every aspect of life with, with, with economics and with, with, with the world order in a, in a, in a way where the map is changing in, in unprecedented ways where people lived and died where the map didn't change in, in this kind of way. And I think it's just it's again it's not to say that I rejoice in any kind of these tragic events but it's it's a bit serendipitous. Yeah it is I would just wanted to say as you know, everyone's following the news every, almost every single international relations made up any economic forum for example the world economic forum coming together the uh any international relations conference including even the United Nations uh general meetings they're all full of just absolutely incredible opinions and and takes which you know uh would not have been possible 10 years ago things are really escalating in the world today and they're providing us with um uh, you know i guess a more clear outlook of what the reality is behind the scenes because a lot of this stuff has been prepared for us in the for the last few decades or has been uh, has been the reality but folks have closed their eyes or at least uh they weren't aware of this exactly how how powerful these forces are that move history and great money and power on the world now that these forces have come to the forefront um we can actually see them at play and it really is staggering i think uh, absolutely and i of course we see it in real time today um the united states russia china everyone uh, all these three of these multipolar giants essentially having their having their own opinions on how foreign policy should be conducted in various places of the world one of those places of course is africa which me and Con myself and conrad will discuss in quite in depth today based on his recent article on the world war now substack i think africa is uh not not just a land of opportunity but it is the forgotten continent so to speak forgotten by not just 
um, I think history, but also an abused and uh, an abused and rich place, which of course history has uh, history has pushed around for centuries now. And uh, I think the, there's a bright future for the African people. We're just going to speak about that sometime today at the, on the podcast. And Conrad, um, did you have any opinions on the fact that the globalists and the powers that be are just coming out in full force in the last uh, I don't know decade or so, maybe from the middle of Obama's term? Well, I think in many ways we're seeing that start to be realized by everybody because like what just happened, like we're seeing all this stuff with figures like Kanye West and Elon Musk who are like, these are basically just cultural figures who are, 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 are they just represent kind of the peak of like American or Western like entertainment culture in my opinion. And yet you have Kanye West talking about mm -hmm. Israel and you have Elon Musk, like basically his Twitter posts are honestly, not even through any fault of his own, exposing the fact that the entire Ukrainian <laughs> project is a total corrupt right. scam. And the people backing Volodymyr Zelensky and the, and the collective West in this conflict have the last thing on their mind is the peace and well-being of the people of Ukraine and Donbass and Russia. And I think with just with the past few days with those two figures, we see that like we're really starting in, in many ways it exposes the power of the beast system of the media system because it's so obvious that the popular perspective is at the very least somewhat ignorant if not now leaning against just the general establishment but because of the ability of the media to perpetuate psyop campaigns and to perpetuate ideas through their favorite entertainment figures in media the amount of people that can stand against the regime and just not matter is is a lot higher than people think like people think that you can reach this critical mass and then the powers that be just have to surrender that's just not true and we're starting to finally like but but realizing that is still a step in the right direction right absolutely and, and that's why like and and i think this is a good segue into one of the first things we're going to talk about it's going to be a great episode we're going to talk about africa we're going to talk about nukes we're going to talk about some more prophecies in the words of some saints. But right now, I think what we're going to get into first here is is the black pill. We're hearing from a lot of people that, 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 that Dimitri and I respect have been giving, I don't want to say cold takes, but perhaps perhaps they presenting their takes with what we would consider a lack of perspective or a lack of the, the Velton Shang that we spoke so strongly about in episode one. And realizing that like we said, the, we're realizing the strength of the collective West because they can literally just say, screw you, we don't care, German people, no more gas, American people, massive wealth transfer to a fake country. And the and, and so many people are saying, like, yeah, like all this idea of multipolarity is a lie, Russia is a second-rate power, mm -hmm. combined with this perhaps notion that they've totally failed on the ground. I want to hear your perspective, Dimitri. Is it is it over? Are we just are we coping? Are we are we Kremlin shills seething and coping and pooping and shitting? Well, I I personally think I am a Kremlin shill, but not for those reasons why you know not for the same reasons that right wing and left wing people you know <laughs> accuse me of being. Uh, I have my own personal reasons of being a Kremlin shill, but let's move on. I think I think the black pill opinion is a popular one. It's not the dominant one because. As we can see in the most establishment right-wing and left-wing media sources are already um, vehemently pro-Ukrainian, right? We see them, uh, they're just promoting the pro-Ukrainian opinion across the board. So you do have right-wing uh, commentators such as Alex Jones, um, perhaps maybe even more controversial ones such as Andrew Tate, 
uh, you know, Nicolas Fuentes giving more pro-Russian opinions, perhaps uh, not critically enough, but also, you know, firmly putting themselves in that Vladimir Putin, what he's doing in Ukraine is correct camp. And then you have maybe the more, as you mentioned, more blackpilled, more critical. They are the, they are the uh, theorists, of course, people who we respect in the American right wing, the English speaking world. Uh, folks such as Scott Greer on his highly respected podcast in recent episodes, and as well as um, you know Patrick Casey on Restoring Order, his podcast, just having a more critical opinion and maybe not so much critical as pessimistic, like a pessimistic outlook on the fact that well, the Russian government has finally done something about the uh, CIA-controlled Ukrainian state pushing the interests in eastern Ukraine and. Uh, bullying the people of Donbass and how Russia is actually unable to stop the global American empire. And in the end, Russia will be, you know, losing not just ground, but also, um, you know, losing this war against liberalism and postmodernity. I think these opinions are essentially um, ill-founded and ultimately placed in, in statistics and data provided to us by these same establishment media, right-wing, left-wing sources who um, as we've seen for the last 230 days, the duration of the military, special military operation, they've been pushing um, very biased statistics, very biased news sources. And I think today we'll just speak about some of the recent occurrences in Ukraine and how things are actually not that bad for um, the Russian military over there and how we need to have a very sober opinion on exactly what is happening on that eastern front of, you know, the European international relations sector. That's a that's a good that's a good way to get into this this meaty meaty subject. And I think I think in many ways we need to separate two things. And you and me, I think, would agree on this that there are those who see an opportunity for Russia to for Russia to achieve maximalist aims from a nationalist perspective. And then there's also the perspective on what does the Kremlin want right now. And how are they trying to, at their, at their pace, control the situation? And those two things don't always align. In many ways, Dmitry and I, I think have both said that we have criticisms of Putin. For me, mostly that involves him not doing what he did in February in 2014 and preventing all of this bloodshed from happening. Because in 2014, when he annexed Crimea, the Ukrainian armed forces had about 5,000 active uh, soldiers and were literally like losing daily to the Donetsk People's Militia. And... That if, if Russia had been able to do this, they might have even been able to still force the referendums and hold those back then. And I think, like, people think that when I say I have criticisms of Putin, it's, it's the same line of, like, these, these silly conspiracy theories you might read in the sun. It's, it's, it's not that. It's that now in many ways we're seeing Russia almost, like, hold itself to this painfully legalistically uh, legitimate standard of the special military operation where mm. despite having experienced massive mobilization. We have 300,000 mobilized. We're seeing videos in Chechnya of 20 to 70,000 trained military men ready to be deployed. These troops have not even reached the back lines yet, most of them. Like, this is, like, all these defeats that people are talking about in in uh, in Krasny, uh, Liman, and some of these other places in Kherson, even experiencing large uh, caravans jutting into Russian territory. Like, this is the, these are not the forces that have just been deployed. Like this is the tired uh, remnants in many ways. They've got Wagner, the only ones that are right now actually pushing forward. Like these, even if all of the Ukrainian propaganda about their victories is true, this has no effect on like what I would consider the course of the the Third World War 
and the Russian Ukraine front in the Third World War. Like this is this is perhaps a this perhaps might spell disaster for a few Russian generals, but I don't think Putin is particularly in danger right now. I don't think uh, politically, I mean, and I don't think that even those in the Russian military themselves are actually like, I don't think that they are particularly terrified that like their uppers are, are, are abandoning them or anything like that. I think, I think whether it's something after winter or whether it's something right before the winter really sets in, we're actually going to start to see the shift in the military because of this mobilization. What are your, what are your thoughts on that, Dimitri? I know you have some numbers you've, you're a bit, yeah, a bit I more think plugged into the, into the homeland or your motherland than I am in some of these ways. Perhaps fortunately and unfortunately, because my takes will always be a slightly biased towards the Russian perspective. But I do want to mention that uh, I agree with uh, President Vladimir Putin in that the Russian special military or, or, um, operation has not even begun in full force yet. In terms of the, what we see on the ground is we see mostly volunteers and volunteer armies of Donetsk and Lugansk as well as special military mercenary groups such as Wagner conducting most of the combat. The Russian military actually is sitting several kilometers back, mostly from the front lines, or they're, they're either taking defensive positions around the north, around the Kherson front, uh, sorry, the Kharkov front, as well as south towards Kherson. So the Russians are actually not doing the primary pushing. The only time we've seen the Russian military actually engage quite actively was in the first two months of the operation when they they had the uh, commandos descent at Gostomel and the um, the great lines of tanks we saw like emerging out of Belarus towards north you know going for Kiev and all that action around Chernigovsk Oblast all of the all of that has been um, kind of put to an to a halt as we see the most active forces at the moment in the Ukraine are either the volunteer battalions who fought you know they fought for the donbass and Novorossiya republics for the last eight years now and as conrad mentioned they are quite tired and weary i don't even think perhaps it's ethical that they are fighting at the moment i think they should be they should be given some time out they should be you know a compensation scheme should be engaged because i'm not even sure they are compensated for uh some of their some of their injuries sustained in military action as say a russian contractor would be compensated for or even say an american military person who say fought in afghanistan at one point there is there's there are just no um there's there's no reason why russia shouldn't be viewed as a still a potential threat to the um i suppose uh wholeness of ukraine russia is a great threat this is why zelensky continues to push for support in foreign media sources notice zelensky regardless of his rhetoric he he is always either criticizing those who don't agree with him or actively appearing in foreign media sources for foreign parliaments appearing in the united nations even on twitter he counter signals elon musk for what reason other than clout and to bring more attention to ukraine zelensky knows exactly that his state of affairs is very dire and that russia has not even begun in full to engage in the east yet and i think more to come and of course there's the angle of exactly what is available to russia at the moment i think um Conrad, are you okay if I just touch upon some of that, some of the potential that Russia has? Yeah, I think I think that's some of the things that people really want to hear. Yeah, so let's firstly talk about money because you know there is a lot of news about Russian apparent mobilized conscri uh, conscripts, you know, leaving and people receiving conscript letters and being drafted into the military forcefully leaving to Georgia. That's true. Those some of those stories are not actually false and those photographs of young military aged men leaving into to georgia and of course uh, some of the other borders around russia uh, those are real images and yes russia does have a um has a certain 
slew of the population that are not interested in, say, fighting or, you know, being drafted into the military. Perhaps they're not even at risk of being drafted. We don't really have a statistic on exactly who those young men are who are leaving. And have they even served in the military? Perhaps they're afraid of a future conscription draft, which will draft non-military trained personnel or people who haven't served. But at the moment, the 300,000 who have been called to arms are all people with military experience. One, two, they have to be under the age of 50. Three, they're being handsomely compensated. And this is where I think some American audience members will laugh and say, well, this isn't enough money. I get paid X amount of dollars for an office job. Well, you aren't Russian, my friends. And in Russia, the um, the amount you get paid, of course, like what you can buy, the, the parity is completely different. So I'll give you an example. The monthly salary, this is according to the latest data out of Russia, actually. This latest salary for an infantry infantryman contractor would be roughly around 2,800 American dollars a month, okay? That's at the at the minimal low end. That's That goes all the way up to $4,000 after taxes. This is after the Russian significantly low income tax of 13% has been applied. So notice these Russian people, these 300,000 are getting paid minimum $2,800 a month to fight in the Ukraine, as well as there are, it's not just the, you get paid by the hour. Um, there are also other, I mean, very interesting, almost video game like modern warfare, like analogies uh, that somehow the Russian military has installed. For example, you are, you are, um, paid, you are paid per destruction of enemy uh enemy, say, combatant uh, vehicles. For example, if you take down a helicopter or a tank, you are paid out either one to 4,000 American dollars in revenue. So there's all these extra bonuses that are available, as well as, of course, there's a veteran's pension and compensation schemes, which Putin has greatly inflated in the last year. So it's not like these Russian 300,000 troops are being mistreated by the Russian government when called to action. No, they're handsomely compensated. And of course, you have to consider $3,000 a month in America may not be enough or may not be much. I am not going to judge your financial opinions and based on your circumstances and life, you know, life, uh, life plans. But for a Russian, that is a lot of money and that can easily sustain not just yourself, but your family, your close relatives. Uh, 3000 American dollars a month in Russia is quite a lot. Russia, again, its economy hasn't been in the best place for the last 30 years due to the incredible robbery the capitalists have forced upon us. But, um, things such as this uh they should be taken into perspective okay and as well of course there there are the absolute incredible lines of volunteers just waiting to be conscripted they they haven't received the letter but they wish they have had and some there are there are like what lines with chechens just waiting to re be recruited into kadyrov's private battalions and uh for them it's a sign of honor it's almost like serving in the military has a certain um venerable venerable office for them it's to, to be a warrior is part of their culture. This needs to be taken into account. Perhaps, I'm not sure if that's the same stance military men in the Ukraine would have at this point. Because m mind you, all the young men in Ukraine have already been conscripted. There is no pool to draft men from. And of course, the mercenaries, as we've seen from the Reddit stories, have already either jumped ship or are less enthusiastic about being bombed to smithereens by Russian artillery and the lack of air support, which frankly, the Ukraine does not have. So... No, that's uh, that's some great analysis right there. We might, I might have to even ask a few more, a few more questions because those details are super fascinating. But I think with the Ukraine, like 
Some people seem to think that they have an unlimited pool of people to draw from. And look, let's be real. They have, that's a big country, 44 million people compared to Russia's 160 million. Like it's not like it's a David versus Goliath in a practical sense, but from a strict population standpoint, like those are two massive countries. Mm -hmm. And we, and we saw so many, like people have, people love to spam these videos of the Russian uh, convoys and stuff. And I remember talking about Norway and Finland. And I remember the day people were talking about that. There were some to Georgia, but at that same day, there was, I think, more trucks coming from Norway to Russia than Russia to Norway, which I thought was pretty funny. But I think from the Ukrainian perspective, people need to remember how many people are currently in Poland and these other places. Like the Poles are sick of these Ukrainian refugees. Like those stories are being suppressed in a major way. And the U.S. is doing everything they can to accommodate and make it as nice as possible. But the Poles are not happy with the amount of, amount of refugees coming from Ukraine. And I don't also one other thing, I don't remember Russia ever uh, tying up, you know, men and women for either not serving or not showing proper deference to like the local military gangs, you know, and like, mm -hmm. you know, tying them up and taping them to light poles and exposing them to the elements and everything. That was, that's, there was all sorts of, again, those things never saw the light of day in the mainstream media, but the stuff that went on when, especially when Azov and Right Sector and some of these groups were actually still more relevant before getting ploinked was the uh there really was a reign of terror going on in ukraine at the time and uh, people people that the history books are definitely going to try to forget that yeah i think i think people are forgetting the um the absolute madness that was that that was the ukrainian conscription of the early months of the of this year actually the the fact that ukrainian young men were trying to get across the border into transnistria and moldova and poland and they're just being stopped at the border essentially handcuffed by local local police officers and volunteers and you know dragged back recruited given an ak and sent to the front lines this is why when uh russian defense minister sergey shogu reported the losses of the ukrainian military they are actually believable he said that and this was maybe a fortnight ago at this point shogu reported that the losses of the ukrainian military were around forty thousand dead with sixty thousand wounded and these numbers are quite large. Now, they're a lot smaller than, I mean, a lot larger than what the Western media would have reported at this point. Um, you know, according to Western media, the Ukrainians are doing great without a single um, aircraft or anything of that sort. And of course, the great limitation they have in artillery, minus the imported Himraz uh, missile stations, which, of course, is a subject in and of itself. Um, lots of experts are out there on Twitter posting about that. But uh, yeah, we do need to consider the absolute state of like the Mad Max type recruitment where people were just, you know, whole, young men, essentially, not people. We need to just remember that women and children have already left most of these Ukrainian cities. That's who make, makes up the majority of the refugees. The women and children have left. Meanwhile, the laws which Zelensky has installed is, uh, frankly, um, and this is this may be an opinion the some of the left-wing audience share is that it is quite sexist that only the men are being recruited actually to fight for the ukrainian government to fight for zelensky and his interests for the you know uh the wholeness of ukraine the the men up to the i think it's the late age of 60 or 70 up to the age of pensioners are being forced to fight and, and being drafted and conscripted and you can say well this is it's almost a total war-like scenario. Of course, they need to be drafted. But, of course, we haven't seen or experienced anything of this kind since World War II, at least. And what the Russians are doing with, you know, bringing around 300,000 people, paying them $3,000 a month, and the, all these people have prior military experiences, nothing compared to the absolute madness, Mad Max-style gang violence that occurred in the Ukraine when conscripts were forced to the front line. Well, mal, you know, mal-equipped, untrained, given equipment they weren't used to, for example, Western tanks, 
and uh, yeah, just absolute madness. And the results are clear. Like the the Ukraine is suffering at the moment. Its people are suffering from the Zelensky government. And yeah, I think uh, there's more to come, definitely. And these things that are to come will not be positive, at least not for the Ukrainian population, unfortunately. Oh, definitely not. And I think in many ways, the Chechen stuff says, I remember at the beginning of this whole conflict, we had all these, you know, what you might call wignats or people who were on the right or identitarians that were from day one hard on the side of Ukraine. And for many of them, it was because they liked the aesthetics or had been involved in subcultures with Azov and some of these right-wing groups. But one of their big talking points was the Ukrainians are sending their men, they're all standing up and fighting, which was both a rebuff of the idea perpetuated at the time that I think is accurate that Russia was going for kind of a mass surrender situation in the first months of the war. But besides that, like it was this idea that Ukraine is the true nationalist warrior, whereas Russia is this Asiatic hordic empire <laughs> using Muslims to fight or whatever, which in my opinion is so silly because it misses the entire point of how significant the whole Chechen thing is. Because people don't realize that Putin gained his power and his popularity in the Chechen wars. And to now have within like less than two decades, even less than 15 years of like bloody wars being fought in Chechnya, to have them being the most eager people fighting under the Russian flag, under like a Slavic tricolor and going and conscripting in mass, like that's incredible. And it also misses the point that it, even even these the same people who make this argument about, about being this pro-identitarian Ukrainians, they'll make the point that this is another banker war, Europeans' blood being spilled, you know, this kind of thing, which I agree that's true. Too many military contractors are getting rich while Orthodox Christians kill each other. I agree that's a problem. But for Russia to be able to outsource this this military fighting to groups of elite fighters that it has, minimizing the damage to its core population, to its core you know, ethnos and everything like that. Like this is powerful. Like this is the this is the behavior of a of a of an empire that has displayed its ability to not only take and maintain territory, but to culturally integrate disparate nations into their civilizational sphere. And that's not some praise of multiculturalism. In fact, the Russian example is I think a good example of how you can avoid multiculturalism with how they allow for freedom of religion within Muslim majority uh states and of the federation but are also but they're then restricted very much outside in the christian majority states where like i believe in moscow there's four or less mosques despite it being a large city within a country that does have what was it nine eleven ten eleven percent muslims and this this kind of thing really is 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 a, is a display of the lack of perspective i think a lot of these black people that are black pilling or people that think like like People say that the best hope that Russia can have at this point is to become a is to maintain its minimal gains and become a vassal of China. I don't Absolutely. think that at all. I I genuinely think I still personally believe that Russia will connect to Transnistria. I believe that, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, and I have no problem even being wrong in that prediction. But I think that that when this thing is all said and done is going to be the least of everybody's worries. Like that's just gonna that's gonna be the first chapter of the book. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I I think people who are saying, you know, the use of, say, um, Chechen battalions in, in the Ukrainian conflict is somehow immoral or against the spirit of the spirit of the white man, I think they're forgetting the fact that during the Crimean War in the 1850s, the British Empire literally brought, o brought over Bangladeshian and Indian infantrymen to fight against Rus the Russian Empire at the time, alongside the Turkish and the, and the French um, Freemasons, right? So I just... 
urge you to have a look at perhaps what should be called the First World War, which, is the, which was the Crimean War of the middle of the 1800s. And just the fact that this, this multicultural coalition came around to fight Russia, very, um, very modern sort of outlook, at least from back then. Uh, and uh, again, returning to the Chechen question, I did agree with uh, Igor Strilkov, at least in the first, I believe it was since April around Easter, that the Chechens... Um, began uh, to appear on the scene and of course the famous TikTok videos appeared where you know Chechens were dancing around with machine guns all um eager to appear in in the in the front lines i'm not sure exactly how impactful the Chechen battalions were i think there's a, the fog of war is quite thick so the fact that we do see Chechens quite often on TikTok does not exactly reflect their um positions on the on the front or exactly how effective they are but i do agree with Stilkov in the first months it was quite um the optics were a little bit off in terms of Russia was not willing to commit 100% of its effort, which, as I mentioned prior, it still hasn't. And instead, Russia was eager to use, say, Chechen Muslims in order to fight Orthodox Ukrainians. But that imagery soon went away because, as we remember, the Mariupol atrocities began where footage started coming out of the allegedly pro-European Azov, Azov Mariupol um, you know, extremists, let's just call them that right? Uh, torturing local civilians, using them as human shields while the Russians were, you know, tr essentially surrounding Mariupol and pushing westwards. Just absolute ridiculous atrocities by the Ukrainian military. And at that point, it became clear that, yes, actually, it is, in fact, completely fine to use Chechens who are keen to fight against, say, the Ukrainian extremists, who also they view as enemies, because if you recall the uh, famous military uh, Ukrainian military staffer who released statements calling the Chechens orcs, calling them all these racial slurs, um, the Azov military folks posting on Telegram, you know, coding their bullets and pig fat in order to offend the the Muslims uh, of Russia. This is all these things, they all add up. And in the end, I think Putin has made the right choice by allowing Kadyrov to at least steer his part of the ship towards the uh, Ukrainian demonic behemoth, which is, you know, this terror state that Zelensky has created. I think it's time to take down this Leviathan. And uh, Kadyrov has to be the right, um, he, he has a right to at least be an actor in this great play. I think that's completely, um, I think it's, it's wholesome, it's good, and I think he won't be the last person, I think we're, and this is maybe my opinion, but I think uh, Kim Jong-un, I think, should be also considered as a possible candidate if he ever wants to get involved in Ukraine, or at least assist Russia in terms of providing military force, even contractors for pay. I know North Korea has a, a very skilled and large military. It's one of the things North Korea is actually famous for in terms of, you know, it's not the richest country. It's not known for its technological advances, but its military and its special forces are quite good, if not, probably not as comparable to that of Russia, of course, or China, but they are still very handsomely equipped and trained. So if Putin ever wants to tap into that, and of course, Kim Jong-un was there at Putin's speech last week. Um, he was the only actually foreign leader who attended in person. He attended Moscow, Kremlin, and he was there. So Kim Jong-un is keeping his eye, you know, his eye peeled, and I think his ear is... Uh, his ears are very keen, and if he hears the call, I don't be surprised if you see North Korean military men in the Ukraine fighting for Russia, right? Because, of course, any North Korean contractor would be handsomely paid, and anywhere around 1000 American dollars a month would be sufficient enough to bring back home. And, you know, uh, I think any of them would appreciate that. Uh, but, Conrad, what were you saying about the fact that, um, essentially, the Russian the, the Russian side of things what has been... Uh, 
has been greatly sort of uh, downplayed, like the fact that Russia hasn't actually implemented its full force yet in Western media. And you know, it's just being this this false opinion of Russia's um, Russia's ineptitude is being amplified by these seemingly, um, I guess, not mainstream sources and people who have dissident opinions are still kind of parroting these mainstream talking points when they're essentially based on fake news, if anything. I think it's based on lingering um, criticism of, I, mean, I understand criticism of people that they might consider, like people want Russia to save us, these kinds of things. I think it's just a lack of understanding of, of multipolarity in the worldwide kind of situation that we're really entering into and how I think I think your example with North Korea and China and some of these things like the seriousness with which some of these states are looking by which they can ally with Russia and use this as an opportunity to perhaps have a clean break from the western atlanticist, you know, sphere of influence. And I want to use uh I want to use what you were talking about with North Korea as like a bit of a springboard eventually into what we're going to talk about with Africa and the rest of the world and how they're relating to this fight. And then after that, we're going to get into some prophecies and some some really interesting religious historical analysis. But one of the things I wanted to say when you're talking about that is, you know, are we are, can we expect Orthodox Juche soon? Is that is this going to be? I want that's 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 funny. People were posting about all those pictures of Kim Jong Un, you know, riding on his stallion through the snow. Like, could Kim Jong Un make North Korea a Russian republic and <laughs> and all these sorts of things? But um, I think. When it comes to the, the like those examples and how China and North Korea have really, really hitched their wagon to this, North Korea is also literally the most militarized nation in the world per capita. Like, there's no nation that has more that I think puts more of its people and more of its resources into its military. Like, even more than America. Like, it might actually not be as much as America, but it's the amount of people, at least statistically, is is insane that North Korea is able to mobilize and provide for. But I think this is a good opportunity to take us into you know, perhaps just start to go a little south from what's going on in Ukraine, and which I think is another good piece of evidence to how, look, the military front is Russia holding back, and Russia, you know, in many ways, this still comes from its very much lack of desire to harm civilians. I think it's important to remember that Ukraine would love nothing more than for all the people currently in Russian-occupied territory to just move to Russia. People need to recognize that. That's why they can so frivolously engage in terrorism and civilian bombings, because at the end of the day, it benefits the Ukrainians if every single person in Donetsk city packed up and moved to Rostov, and they just didn't have to deal with those people anymore, because they know that most of those people want to be part of Russia. Whereas Russia, it's the exact opposite. Russia now wants more people to moving back there, and they don't want, they want these things to be civilizations. They want these places to be, they want, I guarantee you when this, when the fighting is dies down in these areas, they're going to want these places to be like beacons and an example of how they can, how Russia can provide for its people outside that are, that have been, uh, I guess, forced outside of its borders. And Ukraine is, is, is very much willing to continue engaging in that. And so because of that, and we just discussed how much Russia is holding back, like that's, that's why I think it's easy for some people to be like, well, it's over. It's, I'm just, I'm not coping. I'm reading the telegram. Like, yeah, we're all on telegram. We, we get it. You're not reading anything different than anybody else is. But I think it's important for us to now get into some of these other things. And this is a good segue into the, the Africa thing, I think. And if you haven't read it already, please go to our Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. And it's called the Africa Front. And uh, I think Dimitri mentioned he's going to be having a little follow-up to that. We might hint at that in a second. But 
in many ways, what we talk about is what's been going on in the latest being Burkina Faso, which many people will laugh and be like, this is irrelevant. Why would you talk about a country called Burkina Faso? That's fake. Which, while I agree some of these African countries are silly and aren't anywhere near as relevant as a country like China, Turkey, Ukraine, what Russia, Russia clearly doesn't think of it that way. And we've seen now in the past year, two years, the formerly French-influenced states of Mali, uh, the Central African Republic, and now Burkina Faso have fallen to... Uh, have fallen in coups towards forces that are more aligned with Russia and have worked with the Wagner Group, who are there in this region, assisting in anti-Islamic terror operations, which, and they themselves have proven to be a lot more effective than the French forces Macron has sent to help with these African states with that kind of stuff. And right now, if you read this in my, uh, in my article, we, it seems to be that the prediction is that Niger will be the next country moved on by Wagner and the Russians in soft and somewhat hard power which will be a huge blow to, to France and the French energy sector because they're, of course, going to be affected by the cold winter and uh, French, very nuclear-dependent country. 50% of their uranium comes from Niger. And so this kind of brings in some of these deep energy ideas. And that also applies to Ukraine, of course, where Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporozhye are the agricultural and energy sector hubs of Ukraine. So it's just always important for people to remember as World War III rages on, like energy is huge. And we're not the first people to make the point that, you know, this is kind of a war between finance and the world of finance and the world of food and fuel, you know, kind of owned by Russia and some of these places that, that, that control food and energy, whereas these other places like the UK, Western Europe, and even in some senses, America, at least the Eastern seaboard elite segment of America, they're, they, they depend on finance. And as many of people are saying, you know, you can't eat dollars and cents. And as we see what's going on in Africa, it's important to recognize, like, is this, a, is this like a dying, like, weak state that's on the verge of regime change that's able to, you know, use its private military contractors in conjunction with its real military to project its power abroad? My article references all of the, the very, very close alliances that Russia has with some of these African leaders. Lavrov was welcomed to the powerhouses of Africa, Egypt, Ethiopia, Uganda, Congo. Like, these are millions and millions and millions of people with growing economies that people that are going to want to buy goods and have energy. And all of these countries are also pivoting towards China. The article, we won't talk about this as much as well, but please go read the article. It talks a lot about what China's doing and how China looks honestly like it's set to both militarily, it already has economically, but even militarily on the continent outpace the United States. So I want to kind of uh, throw it back to Dimitri a little bit. The article, we're going to have some, back and, some interesting back and forth on one interesting part of the article, which is how COVID tyranny and, and, and uh, organizations like the WHO were weaponized against some of these states. So uh, what are your thoughts, Dimitri? Yeah, that's right. I think it's worth considering the fact that um, economic sanctions, economic bullying uh, is only one part of the, I suppose, the strategies used by the Western powers against the developing nations, third and second world. I think another important factor to consider is the... Um, uh, I suppose you could call it the healthcare tyranny we've experienced for the last two years, the absolute state of affairs forced onto us by the um, Fauci-driven COVID pandemic, which was blamed upon China, at least in the initial few months. You know, now that we've realized that it's actually, you know, it's perhaps a deeper conspiracy that runs all the way to the heart of the State Department. And uh, let's just recall slightly what the article mentions in depth that Tanzania was uh, one of those African countries which actually protested against most of these um, World Health Organization COVID measures, such as the forced vaccinations, the 
um, the forced masking, the president of Tanzania, who was uh, subject to multiple assassination attempts and who has recently been replaced by a uh, liberal politician woman who's very French-aligned. And by French-aligned, I mean aligned with the United Nation, um, European Union, of course, the United Nations and the World Health Organization. So Tanzania has stood strong in terms of uh, keeping itself free from, say, this uh, COVID affair tyranny situation. But um, one thing I wanted to mention, and perhaps this is uh, this comes from more of a Eurasianist Alexander Dugan perspective, but we should re recall that um, the one way a world power can dominate, not just economically and military, but also culturally, uh, what the COVID regime has shown us in the last two years is that the West has its opinion on how COVID needs to be managed through forced vaccinations, through forced um, you know, isolation. Uh, nobody attends religious ceremonies. Religion does not matter. You can attend a church or liturgy or a mosque virtually, things of that nature, things that are just absolutely uh, demonic and actually foreign to, say, uh, many Eastern and non-Western sentimentalities. But this COVID, this idea of how COVID should be managed was forced upon second and third world nations, kind of hearkening back to what Putin mentioned in his speech last week, that um, this Western idea of uh, cultural chauvinism is pushed onto countries such as Tanzania, Russia, Uganda, uh, and now Niger, who is being freed by it, by freed from it by the Wagner group. Um, we, we see this idea that, you know, COVID needs to be managed in a Western way. And if you don't manage it in the, in the, fashion that Fauci and the World Health Organization recommended you manage it in, then you are a second rate, you know, you're you're not to be considered a person of valid opinion. You are an outcast. You are a delinquent. And uh, frankly, I could just, uh, you know, let's just bring back the old colonial slurs. You could, you could be called a savage, a barbarian, right? And that's what Russia was called as well. And Russia basically didn't push forced vaccinations upon its citizens and Tanzania in the same fashion. So, you know, in many ways, COVID was used as a spear front to push this idea that, well, the West knows best. And of course, uh, thankfully, Putin also brought this back. He didn't need to, but Putin did mention it in his last week's speech that the West does have this by, and by the West, I mean mostly the European Union and NATO, as well as the countries that are members of, or, you know, in some ways adjacent, has this uh, idea of cultural superiority that it can force uh, its seemingly superior views onto other nat nations, which perhaps aren't as rich as strong. And this is exactly the opposite of what some powers like India and China are doing with, you know, China with its 2011 road and belt initiative where it provides very cheap infrastructure um, leases low interest rate loans as well as uh, physically transporting chinese engineers as well as architects and construct workers to build hospitals roads ports all around africa the central asian republics and all these other places which are perhaps less well off than say um than europe and some of these other richer higher gdp countries um, so China has a completely different take to, say, COVID and the economy uh, than, say, the West does. And thankfully, uh, China at the moment is is all all into this, uh, is completely invested in the idea of multipolarity and does not seek actually to dominate as much as the United Nations has shown it, uh, you know, wants to dominate, at least since World War II. Um, Conrad, I think you mentioned Tanzania and the president there, John Magufuli. Uh, was there any particular reason why you mentioned him in the article. I, I know he recently was replaced by the pro-French president. Um, could you, like, maybe go into that a bit? 
Yeah, I think it's I think Tanzania in many ways is a very good case study that you can I'll kind of point out what really went down there and what it, it's a kind of good primer for how you can examine the rest of what goes on in some of these African countries because you're going to see headlines about these places that I agree there when people say they're fake countries that's not to denigrate the people that live there but these African countries are not drawn necessarily across fantastically well done borders and I'm not saying that I believe in huge border changes either that leads to a lot of violence and warfare as we've seen in things like the second Congo war where millions of people were displaced just in the early 2000s because of these border disputes but in Tanzania John Magufuli was an extremely popular leader, very charismatic. He was, in fact, like, this is all, like, you can read this in, like, things like The Guardian. He was leading Tanzania economic development, all these sorts of things. He was a devout Christian, and when all this COVID stuff started, he demanded, like, days of prayer in his country and these sorts of things. And what happened was he tested the COVID test sent to him on things like pawpaws and goats, realized that they were all coming back positive, so he suspended them, and, um... All sorts of things were going on. At the same time, he was, of course, leading alliances towards other countries like Russia and other things. He was being accused of being a dictator. He was not tolerating uh, LGBT imperialism, which I mentioned in the article as well. A lot of African leaders are vocal about that and why they, it's one of the reasons they might also prefer to get aid from China than deal with the collective West. But he was kind of aligning, you could almost just say it was this perfect storm of pissing off the collective West. And of course, then right, it was a week after he uh, rejected vaccination and was even looking into uh, collaborating with the president of Madagascar, who had come out with a sort of herbal cure that he was spreading across his country. He died of an unknown illness. And later it was claimed to be a heart condition that he had had his entire life. Mm. But it was very suspicious to me. And at the same time, of course, the president of Madagascar, who he had been working with, had had multiple assassination attempts. The president of Haiti was someone who'd also rejected vaccinations and was assassinated. But that's a bit, uh, that, there is plausible deniability there, considering that in like 100 plus years of, of self-rule, Haiti has not had a peaceful transition of power. So that's neither here nor there. But it's a good example of like, you can kind of look at all the things that Magufuli was doing. And in many ways, African leaders will do one of those things, whether it's standing up against something like the WHO or even less COVID-specific, like a Bill, Bill Gates has billions of dollars invested in Africa. They'll resist something that he's doing or uh, they'll uh, turn down an IMF offer or something like that or reject or like a scandal will arise within UN peacekeepers and the people will decide they want to work more with Af- with China or Russia and these kinds of things. And there's this will lead to things like a regime change from from the West. And now we're seeing again in due to their effectiveness, both fighting Islamic terrorism, as well as just general Russian, I mean, African discontent with France and Macron and the current French uh, way it treats their former colonial subjects. Like there was literally a civil war in Guadeloupe, which is a French, a part of France in the Caribbean over all of this, this COVID stuff. People, of course, completely forget about all that was not any of the news, but I actually grew up in the Caribbean and and was keeping up with it pretty closely. And it was, it was insane. And what we're seeing now in these, these West African countries, like you'll see people, just random Africans just all in the streets waving Russian flags. It's, it's hilarious. And like driving on their motorcycles with Russian flags, you know, carrying all, all these things, talking about like burning like the video of them carrying Russian flags, burning down the French embassy. Like this is, this is the sort of thing that it, in many ways there's, it's, this isn't just lingering like anti-colonial discontent from like back in the day. In many ways you can find a lot of Africans that, are still pro like old world colonialism in some ways, but based on how it's been working recently, like 
it's bad. Like they, they recognize that their worldview and their, and, and the worldview of these third world, second world countries does not align with that of, of the people that are there in many ways, they're leading investors, which, although if you look at the map, China's basically outpacing them now, but that also takes us to the fact that what are the two, uh, we we're talking about this. What were the two best countries in Europe for all the COVID stuff? It was Sweden and Belarus and Sweden, unfortunately looks like it is about to join NATO, but Belarus was even better than Sweden. And, Who's like, in many ways, Putin is, of course, enemy number one, but it's still a little bit impractical to like really, really launch like just a direct color revolution right now. Like they, they know they're not quite ready for that yet. But besides that, who is enemy number one? It's Lukashenko. You know, they're coming, they're coming after him in all these ways. You know, I love, I mean, and if you follow me on Twitter, you know, my profile picture is, you know, Baska handing you a, handing you a, a juicy watermelon slice. So I'm sure my opinion is a bit biased on that as well, but I was going to give uh, Dimitri the opportunity, anything you want to say on the African front, and uh, we can wrap that up a little bit and then get perhaps into Belarus, Poland, and then into some OPEC stuff. Yeah, I think on the African front, it's always always is important to remember that in a way, the African civilization or the broader Af- African world, it's, it's still kind of finding its footing. Uh, it's still, it's at the moment economically rising, receiving aid from Russia in military in a military sense, and of course economic aid from China. Um, but ideologically, it's still in its uh, foundations, so it's not yet clear exactly what kind of future religion or broad ideological, uh, you know, position the African countries will take upon themselves and hopefully um russia's the russian church's uh, involvement in in these african countries will only improve the footing of orthodox christianity because as myself and conrad are just absolutely um um we're completely aware of this but Orth- the orthodox church is does not hold the same view of cosmopolitanism you must destroy your own nation it is it is not anti-patriotic in any sense in fact it enhances your natural cult your national culture it uh, affirms those natural um, talents which every ethnos and every tribe has, and I think Orthodox Christianity is exactly what Africa needs, and this is what I'll be touching upon in my short article I'll be releasing on the World War Now Substack. So look out for that. Is the perspective how why is the Russian Church entering into Africa in the last three years? Because this is an unprecedented, essentially missionary action. And so what we'll be saying is the Russian church sending missionary priests, bishops who know these local African languages, who can speak French, who can speak English, who can speak all of these various dialects, of course, because Africa is just so um, diverse, essentially. Uh, and, uh, you know, the article will discuss all of that and, of course, how that plays into the greater um, breaking of schism between the Greek and the Russian churches. And geopolitically speaking, we have Wagner acting on the military end trying to improve these countries, essentially assisting the local governments, assisting the nationalist forces to fight against Western imperialism in its current liberal form. And then you have on the religious side of things, the Patriarch of Moscow sending out these um, heroes of missionary vigor, these Russian priests who have studied these African French foreign languages are now going out to Africa in order to um, provide, you know, the solution to essentially the problem the world faces these days, which is this postmodern liberal reality. The solution is not found in, you know, secular materialism. The solution is found in Orthodox Christianity, which I think everybody should look into and uh, definitely keep an open mind towards. Um, 
So the thing about the thing about Africa is, let's not forget, it's still a nation which is still rising up. I think Conrad mentioned the fact that they are being bullied, especially nations such as Tanzania. Niger has long been under French influence, you know, economically, as well as the, you know, the top political people in Niger have been under extreme pressure to always align themselves with the European Union. These things are all coming, uh, coming to a halt, hopefully, and uh, being shaken up quite vigorously by the. Um, by the actions of, say, foreign foreign uh, beneficiaries such as Russia and China. So, Conrad, I guess we can move away from Africa for now. And for those who want to read the Substack more in detail, you're welcome to. These articles will be out there this week. Um, let's speak about Lukashenko, you know, Batka, and uh, his approach towards, of course, the COVID circumstance and how he views, I suppose, his position in this, I don't know, current geopolitical alignment in Europe and also how that plays into Poland because Poland of course was a, a national a, a historical enemy of, of Belarus and essentially they have a long history and now Poland of course is making big demands Poland is on the board officially making claims of one almost I think it's over a trillion dollars of um, a trillion dollars in compensation they're asking for from Germany which is absolutely absurd considering the German economy is in the worst place it's been in the last I don't know maybe four decades because of this recent Nord Stream gas sabotage it's just incredible Poland is really stepping up and uh, this may not of course benefit Russia or Belarus but the, the fact of the matter is Poland is getting up off its feet it's um yeah we are seeing big things in Eastern Europe and not just in the Ukraine so I guess I'll leave it to you Conrad yeah, big, big, big things. And with Africa, I'll just say my last two cents, which is the uh, uh, when with that, uh, Dimitri is going to lay all down some of this ecclesial stuff. And in many ways, I think Russia is is seeing I think what they're going to do in Africa is actually going to help mend the schism in Ukraine, as opposed to some people like, no, they're making it worse by making things more complex on these jurisdictional issues. No, I think it's going to be able to actually help unite that situation by we can get into that later, actually. But and then when it comes to uh, just a religious thing about Tanzania as well with Wagner, they were there to fight Islamic terrorism. And of course, when Magufuli was taken out, who is he replaced by? A woman who is from the Muslim minority of the country, who despite wearing her hijab is still very much pro all these, these, these pro-Western causes and everything and is very was immediately, of course, adopted the COVID narrative. So that's just, if the proof wasn't already there for you, there's that. But to our friend Alexander Lukashenko, he... Uh, you know, I think Dimitri will probably have some good analysis of perhaps on the status, the current status of the union state of Russia and Belarus and Belarus is like what Belarus can and can't do regarding the special military operation. But I just think it's important to recognize that Lukashenko has been in power longer than Putin. Like he, everyone knows him as Europe's last dictator or whatever. And he did survive a color revolution attempt in 2020. There's still that obnoxious woman, Sviatlana, Sviat, whatever her name is, a bunch of syllables, who's living in Poland or whatever, and is always going on TV claiming to be the legitimate leader of Belarus. But in many ways, Belarus is kind of the, uh, the, the front line of the, like, of just the bloody, just the kind of gro the, the dirtier battles with the West. Like Belarus, what was it, in 2020, 2019, maybe even, there was, they were getting condemned for sending all these migrants into Poland because, you know, all of them were coming up through the Balkans and getting into Belarus, and everyone's like, they're leading an invasion of Poland, and like, look, what does Bel what does Poland do for Lukashenko? All they do is 
advocate for like extreme hostility towards his his interest in the Russian interest. So I I don't think it's I don't see any reason to condemn. Look, I think Lukashenko is putting his people first, getting the people out of where he is and putting them somewhere else. But I think again, his COVID thing, like he would hold these like he would make these like propaganda videos where it's just him out in like the snow with like a bunch of like Belarusian elites, like attractive people, and he was just explaining how like all the COVID stuff is bad and how all this kind of stuff. And then of course he has his famous interview, which is probably my favorite interview with like a like an interview with like a uh, what you would call a non-Western aligned leader with a Western media where he just like starts yelling at I think it's 60 minutes of how he's kicked every NGO out. He literally, what is the line? He literally says like, you're mad that we've slaughtered all of your friends here. And then he starts laughing. <laughs> and the interviewer is just like looking at him like completely bewildered because he just, and like what he recently just said, he declared inflation like illegal in Belarus. <laughs> He, he's just i'm sorry like between that and his 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 sheer ability with his ability to huck watermelons i think i think he's just too powerful for whatever like are they, they might try 2020 part two but i don't think it's going to work he's too powerful and maybe it results and maybe putin needs to come in and help him and he just becomes you know the president of the most power the new most powerful state within the russian federation but i i i very much don't think that we've seen the last of uncle sasha yeah, I think Batsko Lukashenko, like his main sin, at least from a right-wing Russian perspective, and this is very niche, and his greatest failure was not throwing the ring into, more, into the um, volcano mortar. This is a Rings of Power reference here, okay? I'm very in tune with what's happening at the moment in the world, okay? So, I, Amazon, I am aware of what's happening. But let's just say Lukashenko had the opportunity in the early 90s to actually win the russian election and run for mm -hmm. president of russia or even almost prevent brought that up absolutely like i think people don't realize yeltsin was not that popular and the only thing that needed to occur was an actual active politician to stand up to him and lukashenko was that man and he was isildur at the foot of the volcano you know inside of it and essentially the uh angel on his shoulder would be like yo lukashenko it's time to you know time to step up and just go run for russian presidency in 1991 you can win this. You can do this. Well, 1993, just defeat Yeltsin, defeat the uh, CIA shills, the liberals who've taken over Russia in the 90s. Lukashenko could have done that, but he retreated into his own stronghold, into Belarus. Of course, he improved Belarus drastically. Drastically, I've had I've had family who visited Belarus several times in the last few years, and they've said the cleans the streets are clean. You don't have. It's not like a San Francisco full of full of, full of homeless people. You know, there's no shit in the streets. It's absolutely like. It's it's very safe. The crime rates are extremely low. The Belarusian police is very active. They have a nice prosecutorial system there. The the laws actually work. People follow the law in Belarus. It is a great nation, and it's just very sad that Lukashenko, in a way, at least from a Russian perspective, and I guess a broader perspective, Lukashenko really limited himself. But maybe he wasn't as proud to you know push for say a Russian presidency. But he definitely could have. Um, and he could have saved us all a lot of grief, but he chose to improve his own little homeland. And that's ex that's essentially what he has done in the last three decades now. So very commendable character in world politics. And, you know, uh, many years to him. And when he does go, he will be remembered fondly, at least, you know, at least among the right wing, uh, you know, the right wing perspective people in Europe. I think he's definitely... Um, a character for the age of someone who will be whose name will be inscribed in the history books.
And if you don't believe us, just go read his controversial statement section on Wikipedia, and I think your mind will change. But this is also a call. Mr. President, Alexander Lukashenko, if you're listening, this is an invitation. You're welcome on our show anytime, and we will we pray for you, and we hope you can become Orthodox, a practicing Orthodox Christian. And uh, we... This is this isn't ironic. This is real. So that's that's if he's listening, let let let's hear it. But uh, I think no, it's very interesting what you said about him becoming the president. There's <laughs> people talk about in history, Belarus almost annexed Russia. <laughs> you know, as people say, like that would have been what it was in a way. But no, I think uh, I think this is a good segue as well. Like not only is uh, Lukashenko, you know, he's been he's been a public enemy for a long time now, but it looks like there's a new public enemy of the Atlantic power structure, and that's Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and um, the Middle East in general is getting very interesting. And we saw, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia in conjunction with Russia. Basically, it, it almost wasn't even hidden that they were doing it in a way that was directly realigning themselves more closely with Russia. They were getting sick and tired of the U.S. keeping Ukraine away from the negotiating table because with Turkey, Saudi Arabia was the main power as well. Turkey, Belarus, and and Saudi Arabia were the three main powers, you know, of course, meaning talking about hosting these talks. And Saudi Arabia seems to be fed up with it. They're cutting production in a major way at a bad time, of course, really bad for Europe. Of course, you know, I'm I'm talking about this in a in a way that's positive towards a new multipolar world, but I drive a I drive a decent sized car. I don't get amazing gas mileage, so I guess we're gonna be seeing gas prices go up. But this is just one of the biggest examples, like after the Nord, like like this is in the and this is a big thing in the like this is big like Nord Stream level big like this like OPEC the petrodollar this is the foundation of the global finance system, and as Russia proves that like despite it being literally a slave and a rape victim of capitalist global finance the past thirty years very much in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands, they've proven that the global financialization hasn't it still hasn't fully dominated yet. The fact that they are still such an energy power and such a, I, I still think the cultural power is just as important, but they're just such still an energy energy powerhouse. They are still completely able to disrupt the world economic order despite being so financially crippled and sanctioned to hell and all these kinds of things. And I think the cultural thing is the main thing that allows them to ally with these other powers. I guess that would be my, my reason. I think it's so valid and valuable and still so important to the... Uh, to the interpretation of these events. But yeah, now we have the U.S. call it going after Saudi Arabia. Like, are we going to finally see, like, what is the U.S. going to start funding Yemen now? Like, what's this going to look like? Yeah, I think importantly enough, let's just let's just not forget um, in terms of Saudi Arabia and the United and the United States, they've been friends for a long time now. This is close to 50 years now since the petrodollar has been established. The petrodollar, of course, and I recommend everybody else do their research, but this is one of the foundations of why the American economy is where it is now in terms of being the, the American dollar being the most powerful, um, the most powerful currency in the world. It's uh, in large deal. It's, it's it owes itself to the fact that the United States had made really nice deals with the nations of the Hejaz, which is the Arabic Peninsula, and especially Saudi Arabia. Now, I just want to bring up the fact that at the moment, Dark Brandon, aka Joe Biden, the president of the United States, has failed in many ways to really coordinate himself with OPEC, with Saudi Arabia, which has forced incredibly high, as you've probably experienced wherever you're listening from, but the petrol prices have gone up and OPEC is um, not willing to increase the supply, which would decrease the cost. Um, 
they cannot come to an agreement with Joe Biden, and that's maybe because they see him as the demented puppet that he is, or perhaps that they know the powers that stand behind Joe Biden actually do not wish for Saudi Arabia and the and the Arabic kingdoms of the Middle East to flourish. I'm not sure, but let's just recall that who could make such a grand deal with Saudi Arabia in the last, uh, let's just say, decade. And this is probably historically one of the greatest mil uh, military contracts ever signed in the history of mankind, was when in 2017, United States President Donald Trump and the Saudi, Saudi Arabian King Al Saud, they signed a series of documents essentially purchasing 110 between 110 and 350 billion dollars worth of weapons from the United States. So Saudi Arabia agreed to buy almost close to one third of a trillion dollars worth of weapons from America over the next decade. Now, just to put this into perspective, that's almost the size of the Lend-Lease deal that the United States has given um, countries during World War II when the United States was economically helping the uh, states that were opposing Nazism, so the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union. The United States was selling military equipment to its allies to fight the Nazis in the Third Reich. So Trump somehow managed to agree, uh, managed to come to this uh, deal with the Saudis, and now, frankly, we see um, you know Joe Biden failing to make even, I don't know, a deal a tenth of the size in order to bring the petrol price down. And uh, yeah, the pressure OPEC has put upon the world, essentially. OPEC is holding the reins in its hands at the moment because of the pressure that Russia has placed on the energy market and the unreasonable sanctions placed upon Russia. So it's all a big, uh, it's, it's all a large, really long row of dominoes um, and everything is interrelated. So um, regarding OPEC, Conrad, I'm sure you have a lot to say. Um, just kind of want to go into that a bit. No, no, if anything, I was actually, I'm thinking about how I want to kick it back to you next because I've got a few ideas and things that I've thought about that you probably yeah. have a bit more knowledge about than me. And of mm. course, I know you want to talk a bit about Putin's call to the king of Bahrain, but I think people just need to, uh, when it comes to the OPEC and the domination of the petrodollar, people need to recognize how critical that is. Like, this sounds like, like, it, some people who might, like, be casual listeners are like, every week it's a new, like, this is the most important thing. But, like, no, no, this is, like, really, really, really critical because. In many ways, people say I'm a conspiracy theorist for saying this and that there's no evidence, but it, I think it's almost an undisputable fact that part of the main reason that Saddam Hussein was taken out and invaded was because of he was trying his best to buy oil from Iran in non-dollars. The whole point of the domination of the petrodollar is that international oil purchases have to be pegged to the dollar, basically. That's what Dimitri was referencing when he said all these these deals with these, these oil powerhouses in the Gulf and the Middle East. And now that we have, like, we already have India buying buying oil from russia in rupees like and the u.s has said in the past that they're willing to like completely go to total war with the country because of something like that so in my opinion that's a tacit admission right now the u.s doesn't necessarily think that they can just invade russia by land you know like they've they've committed a, an egregious offense that is that that would warrant i think a response that dramatic and that hasn't happened yet and they haven't even we haven't even directly gone into ukraine whereas you know I think we actually basically have, I think we're seeing a lot of these contractors, these these NATO, these American Western contractors, English speakers, like if you see any frontline videos from these successful offensives, it's all English. That's perhaps something that we can get into a bit later. But in general, this this energy realignment, like I've heard people talking it down, like if Russia could cut off every single pipeline west and then just start investing in pipelines south from its far east. And I don't see how that wouldn't eventually just do better than their current market. Do you have any uh, 
any knowledge or uh, or thoughts on perhaps the future energy infrastructure and the energy integration with the the states in the east and China and India and even the Central Asian states? You know, I think I think China's in a really positive, like great state. If you recall, in the last decade, China's made some incredibly generous deals with Russia in terms of buying gas, purchasing Russian raw gas for, for quite cheap prices, and of course, coal especially. Um, so Russia, and mind you, because of the lack of action, the United States really hasn't been uh, in the in the strongest sense active in the Pacific that much, besides its bases in Japan and South Korea, and uh, its fleet essentially this fleet that drains trillions and billions of American taxpayer dollars to sustain, we're talking about the aircraft carriers, they really haven't done much to stop China from becoming empowered through Russian raw resources over the last decade or so. And this will only become exacerbated as time goes on. There's nothing really that will stop Russian resources from going into China and the Chinese economy growing to incredibly overpowered states and eventually overtaking the United States itself economically as the number one economy in the world. Um, that's that's essentially what's happening in the east i i do want to see of course north korea integrate itself a bit more with russia and of course making more you know uh more amicable deals there but i but north korea is incredibly conservative with some of its trade agreements so they really haven't um haven't kept the doors too open on that end and that's not a fault of anyone's it's just the cultural i suppose perspective that they have they are a very closed off nation for many reasons and um, they are very wary of exactly who they deal with, especially especially large, powerful neighbors such as the United States and China. So I think it's worth considering the fact that the Ukraine has really placed the fact that the Ukraine, the Ukrainian war and Nord Stream 1 going down, it's placed a lot of emphasis on energy, the importance of petrol, uh, coal, gas, all these things are going to be uh, no one at the moment cares about greenhouse gases anymore. I think the attention is fully on these carbon emitting fuels they are the again the i suppose they are the uh the thing to be sought no but nobody is noticed no one is speaking about clean energy or global warming everyone is speaking about how expensive the petrol is nobody frankly cares anymore it seems the subject matter has shifted as you know once the globalists contact their you know their people in mainstream media the mainstream media changes its opinions such as from COVID to ukraine from global warming to okay the petrol's too high it's because russia russia's to blame well maybe russia is actually improving the globe by increasing the price of petrol why don't we see that perspective from the liberals again it's because most of these talking points are man manufactured behind the scenes and you're not actually receiving the valid opinion of experts you're receiving the biased peer-reviewed um filtered opinions of uh liberals just to put it frankly um but of course uh there's a, of course great movements being made um in terms of uh there's probably things we don't see and i'll just point you to the map if you look at the two gas lines we spoke about last week soyuz and uh Bratsla brotherhood that run for ukraine these are the two main gas lines running from russia through ukraine into poland uh, eastern europe and primarily germany germany being the main gas recipient these are the two land gas lines the large ones so brotherhood and soyuz they both run through the northern Ukrainian regions, which is, notice, it is the region that Ukraine is allegedly conquering back, or what you can say, well, they're pushing the Russian forces back, or the Russians really never established the proper defensive foothold in those areas to begin with, which is right, the tactical retreat is ongoing. But notice, Ukrainians are securing the areas through which the gas lines run first. They're not pushing the south, which has no gas lines, they're pushing the north. 
That's important as well. Remember, in the early months of the special military operation, uh, Russians entered through the north, through Cherniv, Chernigovskoye Oblast, essentially. Chernigovskoye Oblast is where the, the thickest pipes run through. It is the most, uh, I suppose you could say, almost the most sensitive part of the Ukraine, because that's where uh, half of, not half, but a large portion of European gas goes through. And the Russians were pushed out of Chernigovskoye Oblast as, like, either pushed or maybe there were some calls upstairs. Maybe the president of Austria, you know, phone called Putin and said, look, this is getting really out of control. Like, can you please retreat out of Chernigovskoye Oblast? It's, you know, what if a Ukrainian bomb, because we, Ukrainians did bomb their own radio, um, radioactive uh, nuclear power stations, right? We've, we've seen these acts of complete negligence in the past. Maybe some foreign, uh, you know, foreign diplomats, they contacted Russia and asked Russia to actually leave the Chernigovskoye Oblast tactically just to prevent Ukrainians from blowing up the gas lines there. I think that's something worth considering. Why do you think Russia hasn't pushed in the north? Um, I tell these people on Twitter, well, primarily because, yes, these gas lines are there. So there's a lot of emphasis on exactly keeping energy resources flowing, which is why the sudden destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline is such a... I mean, such an offense upon uh, global diplomacy. Like, exactly who done it? Who's who actually had the audacity to blow these gas lines up? It wasn't wasn't Russia. And I agree with Scott Greer. There is maybe a five percent or less chance that the Nord Stream Nord Stream One pipeline was destroyed by the Russian Federation, as opposed to say the United States or some other malicious actor. I don't think the Ukrainians, frankly, have the resources to you know, like the submarines or whatnot, the tactical impetus to go out there into the Baltic, into the cold sea in a kilometer underwater, actually blow up these gas lines. But somebody's done it, and whoever has done it will receive the full answer of NATO, I think. And that's probably where one of our um, one of our reasons for a future nuclear war could come from, frankly. It's whoever did destroy that Nord Stream pipeline, he would be he or they may be marked as an enemy number one. That is the Saddam Hussein participated in 9/11 moment of the 20, uh, the you know the 21st century essentially. The second large moment of like who is the bad guy? Who has sabotaged these pipelines? And if of course it, the finger is pointed towards Russia, I'm not sure exactly what will happen. Like this is. Uh, it's going to become get really heated, and not just from a perspective of petrol going down, but yeah. Yeah, no, I think in many ways, Russia, they don't want to deprive the Ukrainians of a huge amount of energy. And they, they if they're going to eventually turn off more pipelines, like the Germans took, or not the Germans, the Americans took away that, that leverage that they had to turn the pipeline on and off with Nord Stream 1 and 2, although they claim that they might be able to get some of it going again. But in general, I think it's just so funny that the government in Germany at this time is the Greens. Like, they have to just, like, shut up about their issue that they... that Like, their party is literally exists for the sole purpose to lecture you about global warming and the environment. And it's just not, like, you can't anymore. Like, it's irrelevant. Like, we have to put that psyop to rest <laughs> for a bit just because because the, 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 the current thing demands it. But... But no, I think, I think in many ways the energy stuff, like, the... Like, Another thing for all the people that were perhaps blackpilling, like it, any take you have, I think is going to be irrelevant when in January and February, when we see what's going to happen to some of these countries and it's going to totally change the game. And America seems like they're going to do everything they can to keep Ukraine away from the negotiating table, but that's going to be a real test of American soft power, you know, like that's, it's going to be big. And, uh, I think, uh, I think after, uh, we've, we've had a good discussion about, 
about the whole European situation and all the the on the ground situation and the 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 infrastructure and the hardy the the, the deep energy and these this analysis. But uh, Dimitri's got some pretty interesting uh, some pretty interesting religious analysis to bring to the table. I think what when it comes to these prophecies that we've talked about, you know, last week we had some great talks about St. Lawrence of Chernigov, Metropolitan Neophytos, who, of course, they're all, like, they're fair game for every episode, you know, be, remember their names, you know, these are people that we're going to always be referencing back to. But in many ways in the 21st century, we, we, we had some indication of perhaps, or perhaps some things to come and some, some very, some both positive, some positive signs in world orthodoxy that pointed towards what we're experiencing now. Yeah, I think uh, people should <clears throat> people should uh, understand that uh, the last decade has been very kind to the Orthodox Church in terms of growth, and the only thing that the greatest setback that we've experienced has been this Ukrainian conflict. Frankly, it's been this anything around Ukraine. It was that was actually the largest uh, the largest uh, negative mark on the Orthodox Church in the last decade, or even maybe the, you could say the last fifty years. It's been. It's been the thing that's been discussed the most, uh, and the thing that will might bring some future disunity. Just want to mention that probably the greatest, the most, the brightest moment, at least in recent years, besides the Macedonian reunification with the Serbian Orthodox Church, which is an amazing healing of schism, and and is evidence that the Holy Spirit is active uh, among not just you know in our lives and at liturgy, but also in greater things in world world history, like. People can come together and peace can be established on grounds which really, you know, which, you know, things, compromises came about which would never have been possible in in a world without God. That's what I will say in terms of Macedonia Amen. and Serbia. So Amen. it's really amazing. Uh, one other thing I'd want to mention, of course, is 2013. Uh, let's bring it back to the fact that Russia, this is six months before Euromaidan, six months before the radicals in Ukraine took over. The Russians celebrated the 10,000, no, sorry, 1,025 year anniversary of Russia's baptism. So Russia was baptized historically, the year was 988 AD. That's when St. Vladimir traveled to Kherson, actually, which now has returned to Russia. St. Vladimir traveled to Kherson and he was baptized into Orthodox Christianity by Greek bishops. Of course, that was a great moment. So Kherson returning to Russia now is uh, is a kind of a great omen, uh, like a very positive Orthodox development, because Kherson originally is the origin. It is the city of Russian baptism, you can say. An ancient Greek city, of course, that's mentioned in Roman texts and ancient Greek texts, but of course, a, a Christian city. So it returning under the, um, under the power of Russia is extremely positive for people who, of course, uh, appreciate that sort of sentiment. And now, in the year 2013, the Russians celebrated the 1,025-year anniversary of Russia's baptism. The official celebration of that baptism, which took place right at the end of the Soviet Union, actually, uh, in 1988, was not as triumphant, simply because the Russian Orthodoxy in any Christianity was not as uh, prevalent in the Soviet Union. It wasn't as popular, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't sponsored. People didn't donate as much money back then. It was seen as uh, something uh, something that should be shunned. And only in 2013 did Russians have a proper appreciation of the fact that, yes, a thousand years has passed since we have become Orthodox. And during those celebrations, which took place in Kiev, of all places, uh, of course, Metropolitan Onufri, the current hierarch of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, was present. Um, 
Patriarch Kirill was there, Vladimir Putin attended, and of course the Ukrainian president at the time, the legitimate president, Yanukovych was there. So Yanukovych, Putin, Lukashenko, I believe, attended as well as a guest of honor. Uh, the Patriarch of Jerusalem was there. The Patriarch of Alexandria, the you know, his famous title, the Lord of the Cosmos and the 13th Apostle, the Pope of Africa was present. You had all these hierarchs from overseas, all these Orthodox great leaders, all attending Kiev in the middle of 2013, in the middle of summer, to celebrate this great baptism of the Russian people, 1,025 years. And six months later, what occurs? After this great triumphant coming together of all Greeks, Middle Eastern Orthodox people, Russian people. Of course, then I think this probably ticked off some evil powers in the West or anywhere in the world. And, you know, they set off their dark plan of starting the Euromaidan and pushing these dark forces into effect. And we have, you know, the extremist, extremist Poroshenko and his government taking over in 2014, forcing the legitimate government of Yanukovych out of, you know, out of the parliament, out of, uh, out of Kiev. And the Euromaidan, of course, led to the atrocities in the Donbass and the shelling of innocents and killing of Christian people. And of course, it's led to 2022, to the 24th of February, the beginning of the military operation. So we see 2013 as a year to which we have to return in the future. And perhaps the returning of Kherson under Russian governance, finally a proper orthodox governance of the city, maybe this is the starting point of better things to come. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, the good times ended in 2013 and we've been in these times of tribulation for the last almost a decade now. Next year it'll be a decade, but um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to consider there, and uh, I just want to ask Conrad, Conrad, what else do you think will be, um, what else can we look forward to in that regard? Like um, Russian victory, I think is is assured, but this is these are all hopes. I'm mostly praying for at least a, at least a peaceful resolution to what's going on at the moment because things are really escalating out of control, and it seems that cooler heads are not prevailing, and in fact uh, we have the voices of madness speaking about nuclear you know almost a, a nuclear holocaust of some sort as the final solution to this entire like debacle and not going on to the nuclear subject of course but i think it's worth mentioning the fact that uh, diplomacy in a large way has failed and um in the ukraine it's, it's a good example of even the recent putin speech putin requested that well zelensky should sit at the table now that these four regions have been officially can uh, region they've been reconnected with russia and the referendums have been passed and this is what elon musk suggested in his recent viral tweets as well and guess who has declined these talks of course these peace talks were declined by zelensky who even tried to ratio elon musk on twitter but you know, it's not even about the ratio of Zelensky. It's about the fact that young Ukrainians and young Russians are dying for exactly for what? Um, the wholeness of your criminal state? It's not. It's not entirely clear, is it, Conrad? No, not at all. And uh, you're right. I would love to get. I think I'm going to use this as a pitch. You know, we would love to get into the nuclear question. We're getting pretty late on time here. We're going to talk for a few more minutes. But if you want to hear us talk about those things, please subscribe to our Substack, our YouTube channel. We're going to be putting the paywall up there eventually, and uh, this might be one of those things we put behind there. We might put it up publicly, but I think you're going to really like our take on the nuclear situation. You know, you know, we think it's it, there's elements of you know an Assad repeat chemical weapon attack there with an attempted possible future U.S. false flag, but the take goes so much deeper than that. And I even want to bring in some of the Elon Musk Starlink stuff because it gets pretty, you know, this gets a little more esoteric, and I think I think you're going to really like that. So. 
stay tuned for some of that. But on the prophecy side of things, no, I think uh, I think what you said is crucial. And again, not to get too schizophrenic here, but last week we mentioned, of course, the prophecy of Saint Porphyrios and his words to Saint uh, to Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphou, saying that you know in your life he told him that once you pass your fiftieth year of life, you'll begin to see the changing of the crew of the ship. You know, a, a people that are people that are ready, people that have been prepared, I guess, by God for the, such a time as this will be, will be installed and will, there will be perhaps fast turnover of hierarchy and clergy within the Orthodox Church. And, well, when, when did Metropolitan Neophytos turn 50? Well, that was in 2014. So uh, I think, again, not, to, not, to that, not that we sit in front of cork boards with numbers every day, but I just think it's important to recognize some of these, these patterns. And, of course, Syria, that civil war started in 2011, and in many ways, that was the first, like, it, it, I kind of see it as the first, like, true, like, incursion and Western assault, as well as the Libya situation that was really not driven by 9-11, because they got away with a lot due to 9-11 with Iraq and Afghanistan and all this stuff. That, that, that's, a, that's a situation. But Syria really started, some people, I've had people, our, our audience say this, that World War III started in Syria in either 2011 or 2014. And I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of truth to some of those statements based on how world events have played out since then. And Assad, you know, the Lion of Damascus, he is still in power there. So I think there is evidence that the powers that be have really faced an impasse since some of the, that conflict and other conflicts in its periphery have specifically started. But regarding the words of St. Porphyrios in the church and, you know, the, the new crew of the ship, I'm not, again, I don't mean to, I'm not necessarily asserting that any of these people, any of these hierarchs that are being turned over and are dying or being replaced were or were not bad people, but it's just, it's, it's undeniable. We have, of course, in the past few years, a new patriarch of Serbia, as well as a new metropolitan of Montenegro, which is very important in the Serbian Orthodox Church. We have in America, we are now going to be getting a new head of the Archdiocese of North America. We have the new head of Rokor, Metropolitan Nicholas, who's been, you know, installed in the past few weeks. There's a rumor, of course, not rumor, the Archbishop slash Patriarch of Cyprus is very old, and there's rumor his health isn't, isn't great. And we basically already know who his replacement is going to be, Metropolitan Athanasios of Limassol, a great, a fantastic hierarch. Patriarch Ilya of Georgia is nearing 90 years old. You know, these are... the um, We've already seen uh, Metropolitan Hilarion Alfeyev, who was second in command in Russia. He was basically demoted and sent to Hungary. And uh, I think that's, I don't think that has nothing to do with his um, very vociferous and pro COVID vaccination statements and perhaps some of his more liberal attitudes. And there's all sorts of other examples of this. And uh, so I, I think it's almost undeniable that, 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 that that's coming. So I think it's important to keep our eyes peeled for for the things that these men have been prepared for. And I mean, even, and in many ways, I mean, I've even seen posts, I mean, just follow Dimitri on Twitter. There, there is somewhat of this civil, we've talked about the civilizational religious revival in Russia. And then this is by no means to say that Russia is the perfect based country that's going to save us all and unite us under the double-headed eagle, but church attendance is up in these countries. The, I, who is it? I believe it was the bishop or archbishop of Kaliningrad. He's called on all of his people. They're they're fasting for ten days and praying just for peace and for prosperity in their in their country and in, and then for for no loss of life. Like these are like in many ways, this, this civilization is returning to what 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 something looked like before the beginning of what Dimitri and I would consider the dark times, the true death of the Anshen regime, the true begin the true actualization of modernity. Of course, the murder of Tsar Nicholas, Tsar Saint Nicholas II and his family, the fall of the of Christian and of true Christian 
imperium in the world in a in a governmental sense like we believe that like we're finally starting to see something like that return again and so many people of course in the west are like to them it's like easy propaganda victory like look at these backwards barbarians and their war cult but like i think people that think like that are gonna they're gonna they're gonna be in for a rude awakening when they realize that you know b-dubs patriotism is no match for you know symphonia that's right true patriot true patriotism true christian uh view of nationhood as returning back to the world and i think it hasn't it hasn't gone away ever fully i think we've seen it in sparks in serbia here and there in greece as well when faced with moments of tribulation the christian spirit the christian way of uniting a people in order to drag them through tragedy has uh, returned to uh, some of the greater nations such as russia who was asleep for such a long time since the 90s and the, you could say even the entirety of the soviet period but i disagree i would say I think the 90s and the early 2000s was when Russia was the least active in terms of actually participating in world affairs, allowing huge tragedies to occur, such as the bombing of Yugoslavia by NATO and the tearing away of Kosovo, The, you know, of course, the bombardment of Serbia on Easter in the 1990s. There's, these are just horrific events which Russia, at the time, for whatever reason, was asleep or too weak or subjugated on its knees. It was not capable of stopping, you know, what you would call the Great Satan from acting in the world uh you know the katakon was missing for a time and i think he's making a return uh so i there's definitely a lot to consider recently and to not view these events for again i'm repeating myself as from last week to not view these events for an orthodox lens is to be missing out on exactly uh probably the most clarifying perspective you can have on modern geopolitics a lot of this a lot of geo the geopolitical is intrinsically linked with the spiritual we know the great conquests of the even the western people the western europeans such as columbus's journey to the to the the americas that was in a way inspired by the catholic faith and of course the portuguese journeys to to, to asia in the 1600s was also inspired by a certain western denomination of christianity moves in history great migrations of people great uh, civilizational shifts things occur through religion through faith people need to believe in something and that something may not may, may not always be good that something may be uh inspired by the spirit of you know the antichrist and an antichrist at the end of times will also be a great spiritual leader as well as political powerhouse so let's not forget that so it's all about not following the wrong opinions but also viewing the world through a spiritual lens because there is no way one can view what is happening today accurately without of course assessing it um assessing as well the, the spiritual dimension no and it's so it has so many levels whether it's from like just basically having an understanding of the scriptures towards having a true understanding with which to view history and institutions and which institutions were acting perhaps in a it which institutions are historically acting in in a way that's against you might call the forces of evil in the world and i was in uh when it comes to these things being spiritual battles, I was recently in Montenegro, of course, uh, hanging out with a Serbian Orthodox friend of mine, looking out over the beautiful Bay of Kotor, and he's telling me, oh yeah, in 1999, there was a US, there was a US aircraft carrier here. And it's just, and having been in those countries for uh, multiple weeks at that point, like that's just, it, from an aesthetic perspective, it made me realize this was a spiritual war because this is old country. This is like beautiful Mediterranean homes, beautiful, like even the cars look like they're maybe like the newest cars even like there's some people driving new cars but it just looks all like just a little bit older like it's everything was 
like the church was always the main thing on the skyline of these little villages on this bay and all these things. And then just imagining this huge instrument of war just in the like launching bombs. And again, we know that they started those assaults on Pasca. Like this was like for people who haven't already seen it, I've blasted it all over my social media if you followed me. But we, we know that uh how am I forgetting her name? Of course, the woman who uh who led the NATO assaults, the anti-Serbian woman, Madeleine Albright, yes led the assault of course and we there's she's on video like just racially berating serbs and and christianity of course in in, in many ways but she uh no just realizing that this that these are spiritual battles like it's not like there 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 is there isn't there's a fundamental spirit in the world that seeks to raise up great powers to crush the last vestiges of of of, of truth of the church of christianity and you might think that's biased but i think it's the objective truth and and I think that's uh again that like Dimitri said you're missing out like it's it's very clarifying and again I, I like to believe that we're trying our best not to just give you like what we think is happening to this specific event. Like obviously it's our opinion, but but in many ways like I, I hold back things that I might believe are true in the moment because I don't quite see how they fit in to the paradigm that I I'm, that I've already had confirmed to me as correct. I, I'm able to temper my own perhaps indulgent impulses on geopolitics and opinions with this worldview. I think that's the luxury that something like this perspective brings. Yeah, and I think with that, thank you for that, Conrad. I think we can be starting to wrap things up, at least in our own minds. We've come to this uh, come to this understanding of recent events that, you know, God is, of course, in charge, but God also allows uh, gives us there's a certain synergy ongoing here we do have the freedom to make correct and also incorrect choices and that is the challenge of human existence it's reaching god reaching theosis through our free will of course working with that will of god and i think that's the great challenge of uh, human existence that is uh, that is the purpose of life and uh, with that message i think we'll be concluding today's weekly stream uh, thank you everybody for tuning in to world war now um, I'd, I recommend you read Conrad's recent article on on the African geopolitical as well as economical situation surrounding COVID, as well as my article that will be coming out later this week relating to the ecclesiological side of orthodoxy in Africa and the Russian religious migration into Africa and what kind of effects that may yield and what fruits that may bear for at least the future of Christianity on the African continent. No, we're looking forward to reading that, Dimitri. And again, for those of you that haven't already, please, please subscribe to us on YouTube, World War Now. Follow us on Twitter at World War Now underscore. We now have an active share link for our Telegram. That's uh, t.me slash World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E, at the end of World War Now. So uh, follow us all of those places, as well as follow me and Dimitri on Twitter. I'm at Nomrad. Uh, Dimitri's at Orthodox O-Canonist, Orthodox Canonist. You'll find him. He's always putting some great posts up. So uh, with all that being said, uh, stay tuned for the paywall. Stay tuned for our future episodes where I think you'll be seeing some guests, some people some of you probably know, some big names. So uh, really stay tuned for that. Again, subscribe to the Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. Uh, if you haven't already, visit your local Orthodox church. And with that being said, thanks again, Dimitri. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week, everybody, and God bless. Thank you, everyone. Have a good week.